you are listening to the Confronting Christianity podcast. My name is Rebecca McLaughlin and I'm here with my friend Gavin Ortland. Uh, Gavin runs the popular YouTube channel Truth Unites and is the author of several books including Humility, Finding the Right Hills to Die On and Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. Uh, Gavin and his wife Esther have five children and they recently moved from California where Gavin was pastoring a church to Nashville where he's now um, no longer serving as a full-time pastor but is focusing instead on his YouTube channel. Um, Truth Unites exists to promote gospel assurance through theological depth. And if you're not familiar with it, I recommend you take a look, not only because Gavin explores some really interesting and important questions there, but also because he pulls some of the most fabulous facial expressions that I've, I've ever seen in kind of YouTube still. So it's worth checking out the YouTube channel uh, just for that, if nothing else. Uh, Gavin, thanks so much for, for joining me. Hey, great to be with you. You, you mentioned just before we started recording that you have a snow day in Nashville and I felt smug because I'm up here in Boston where it's like a snow day. It should be a snow day basically every day between January and March. <laughs> and Nashville is kind of more, you know, I think of it as warm and sunny and less snowy, but you're home with, with your five kids today. Is that right? We are home alone. Yep. And uh, it's funny because for us, this is a complete change. We're used to Southern California weather. So for our kids, this was for several of them, the first time they've actually seen snow at all. Oh, wow. So uh, we're, I feel kind of wimpy for us complaining for the cold here, knowing many others have it much worse than we do. So do you want to build a snowman? That's my first question. <laughs> we did build snowmen for the first time. And uh, I, have, I have three daughters, so we're well familiar with that song. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we've had a lot of fun playing in the snow. Oh, that's fantastic. I actually watched Frozen 2 with my kids yesterday for like, not for the first time, but for the first time in a while and remembered how delightful it is. Um, and I also love that you happened to mention that you were home alone, because I'm going to ask you a question now, Gavin, which on your YouTube channel, you began to answer with a reference to the film Home Alone. So I'm hoping you're going to, <laughs> going to go there, but you know, forgive me. You, I'll forgive you if you don't. See, the, the question that I wanted to explore with you, and there are so many that we could, given the range of, of expertise and interest that, that you have. But it's a question that a friend of mine who's exploring Christianity at the moment um, keeps coming back to, and that is, why doesn't God just make himself more obvious? Now, I think a lot of people today have that question. If there really is a God who made the universe, if Jesus of Nazareth really is the only hope that any of us have of being saved from this God's wrath and against sin and welcomed into an eternity with him, then why doesn't God make all that more obvious, you know, kind of writing in the sky or something along those lines. So I'm curious, Gavin, how you would begin to answer that question if somebody is wrestling with it. Mm -hmm. Well, I know so many people as well who are wrestling with this exact question. And over the last year, it's become a huge source of interest to me and, and in my research, simply because I hear this question so much. I almost feel like I hear this question more than the problem of evil. Hmm. So if we think of the, the challenge of divine hiddenness and then the challenge of evil, the problem of evil is two kind of parallel ways of reasoning. You might think of the problem of evil as the dominant objection, but right now in the culture with all of the anxiety that is present and also with the glut of information, hmm. I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed and they're I talk a lot about intellectual anxiety mm -hmm. on my YouTube channel. People feel how like how can I ever decide? And, and and the problem of divine hiddenness kind of plays into that anxiety. So I think it's a huge question right now. I'll give my how I start to think about it, uh, but there's so much to this. So I'm sort of um, broadcasting the the end result here right at the beginning. But just to get right into it, I, I like to ask the question: Is would it actually be good for us 
if God gave a full, unmitigated revelation of himself mm. that left zero ambiguity, if God appeared to each one of us individually in a burning bush or something like that and spoke with a big booming voice or did miracles, or if he wrote in the clouds, I am God, uh, every day at noon or something like this, would it actually be good for us? And uh, posing that question kind of cracks open this whole issue of the nature of our world and the fact that from a Christian standpoint, as well as some other religions, this world isn't the realm of being as much as becoming. Hmm. And so there, God may have purposes for not giving us a full and unmitigated revelation. And I think Christianity would say so, and lots of great Christian thinkers like Blaise Pascal and others have helped us think about what some of those reasons might be. Mm. I, I promised that you would say something about Home Alone. So maybe, oh, yeah. I, I love that answer, <laughs> but, but maybe take us back to the Home Alone illustration as well, and then I'll, I'll let you move on from that. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm sorry. I forgot to get to Home Alone. I mean, we've already <laughs> talked about, these are some of my favorite movies <laughs> because I have young children, the Home Alone and the uh, Frozen 2 we mentioned. Uh, so people who have seen the movie Home Alone uh, might remember there's a character, I, th uh, I had to look up his name, but his name is Old Man Marley. He's a neighbor of mm. Kevin McAllister. And Kevin and his siblings are afraid of him at the beginning of the movie because he's this very scary figure. And eventually they discover that he's actually a good character and he actually helps Kevin and so forth. And so Kevin has a set of misplaced expectations about how he will know whether he should be afraid of this person or not. And simple illustration, but the point that I am drawing from that illustration when I get into this topic in my uh, in the main YouTube video I've done on this is to say if we can have misplaced expectations about what human love looks like mm. how much more can we have misplaced expectations about what divine love looks like and this is a, a simply a cautionary point at the beginning so there's a number of d arguments I build so we're kind of getting into one of the first ones here and that's the problem of uh, an undervaluing of divine transcendence and I feel that in its strongest forms the problem of divine uh, hiddenness undervalues divine transcendence. Just pausing there a second. So for those for whom divine transcendence isn't a, a phrase they, they kind of encounter on a daily basis, just unpack what exactly do you mean by divine transcendence? Okay, good. So, so actually, interestingly, one way of defining divine transcendence is divine hiddenness. Yeah. Uh, but more broadly, transcendence simply means that God is high and lofty and beyond our ability to fully understand. Hmm. So, um, God, we, in other words, we shouldn't expect that we will fully understand everything about God based upon our own moment-by-moment -moment intuitions. One of my friends is, talks about classical theism a lot, and one of his points is, he, I think his tagline is, uh, God exists and he's probably different than you expect. Yeah. And I kind of like this, and this is not an answer to the problem, but it's a cautionary principle at the beginning to induce humility, because I think the problem of divine hiddenness, the strong, especially in its stronger forms, draws its power from a set of expectations about how God should act, how he should reveal himself to us, what love will be experienced by us as mm. from God. And I think, again, it doesn't really get to a satisfying answer yet, but this first point is just to caution us to say, we should be open to the full spectrum of options of how might it be that God might reveal himself to us, and are there possible reasons why that wouldn't be this kind of burning bush, 
set of miracles for every person, but perhaps there's something through the process. And perhaps, and this is, I guess, just to get to the main point, I really want to say to encourage people listening to this right away, through the very ambiguity and struggle that can come about through what we believe as Christians God has given, a partial veiling of himself, but a partial hiding of himself, God is at work doing something through that process. Hmm. That's the great emphasis of Blaise Pascal. And if it was easy, that actually wouldn't be as good for us. And as frustrating as that answer can be, I know for some people, I think there's some good reasons to take it seriously. Mm. Well, and it's striking if, if we think about the Christian story, that the God who revealed himself through the person Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, that was pretty much unexpected by anybody. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't what anybody was really uh, looking for or, or, or anticipating in its fullness. I mean, there was certainly the Jewish expectation of the Messiah, God's kind of promised king coming. But the idea that God would become flesh, that God would actually kind of unite himself to humanity in this profound way, in a very obscure place, in the person of somebody who never wrote a book or led an army or sat on a throne, you know, didn't wasn't a, a kind of big deal, actually, in any kind of global sense at the time. The, the Christian claim that actually if we want to see God, we need to look at Jesus. Mm-hmm is kind of a testament to God's hiddenness and his revelation kind of simultaneously from the first, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Exactly. This is, I find the incarnation, uh, meaning God becoming a man in in Christ, so helpful on this topic Um, because the Christian claim is more mysterious uh, than, it's kind of more complicated than either saying uh, God is hidden or saying God is totally revealed. It's saying God came into our world in this kind of veiled way through, as you say, an incarnation, but then as you pointed out, the circumstances of that incarnation also being so humble. You know, John 1 says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Mm -hmm. He came not as a king, but as a carpenter. He was born not in a palace, but in a manger. When Jesus was born, it was just a few shepherds and the Magi. It wasn't this world event that was reported in the newspapers, so to speak. And so Blaise Pascal has a passage where he says, let no one accost us for saying that we worship a hidden God. That's precisely what we proclaim. And uh, you know, then you might ask, well, why would God do that? Why would God come in a humble way mm. where he's not just blowing, you know, pulling the curtain back and saying, here I am? And uh, there are many reasons that I get into in my video for that. The most beautiful for me personally is what Kierkegaard articulates in a metaphor. Very briefly to recount it, he basically says, imagine a prince falls in love with a poor maiden and he wants to woo her and, and win her over and pursue her. And he realizes, if I come to her as a prince, um, that might intimidate her. It might be an impediment to our developing a relationship. It also might make me not know if she really loves me for me or if she just wants to be the queen one day. And so he becomes poor and disguises himself as a poor person and moves in next door to her and builds a relationship that way and then only very late into the relationship reveals that he's a prince. Mm. And so the motive for hiding his identity is love because of he knows her response, well, that might be. Kierkegaard uses this as a metaphor for why God only partially, because we don't think he's totally hidden. Mm. He he does reveal himself through conscience, through creation, but why he doesn't fully reveal himself as he will on the second coming at the end of history. And he says it's precisely that, mm. because a God who comes in humility to die for us is the kind of God who's 
who can woo us to himself, who can, who can draw our hearts to him in faith, because the biggest obstacle from a Christian perspective, and I know this will be offensive to some of our non-Christian listeners perhaps, but we want to be truthful to what the scriptures teach, the biggest obstacle is in our hearts, mm-hmm. a resistance in our hearts. And so a fully unveiled God actually might be dangerous for us because then we're just heaping up judgment upon ourselves if if and when we reject him mm. or if we just kind of you know begrudgingly admit that he exists and there are lots of atheists who who say I've heard Richard Dawkins say this if god showed up you know and and manifested himself unmistakably that still wouldn't be enough he mm. still would he would assume he was hallucinating mm. and so that's a live concern that you know perhaps god's way of doing this has some good reasons. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's beautiful. I, I wonder as well. And um, I've been spending a bunch of time in Paul's letter to the Colossians recently, and, and reflecting in particular on this passage in in his uh, first chapter of of that book, where he describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And I've just been reflecting on how, in addition to all the things that, that you've just been saying there. The, the the revelation of the creator God of all the universe through Jesus of Nazareth who came in order to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven and welcomed into everlasting life with him and that through that he's then exalted to the, the highest place. That is telling us about God. Like it's almost, it, it's it's not God kind of putting on a costume in order to keep his identity hidden ultimately it's actually part of his revelation of who he is like he is the god who loves that much mm. and who is who is willing to enter in that much that it's almost i mean it's completely mind-boggling like the <laughs> the incarnation in the first place and then jesus's death on, in our place is is so against the opposite of what we would imagine the god of all the universe might do and yet it's it's actually revealing to us a fundamental truth about God and His and His love. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe we're maybe even in the ways that we think that God is hiding Himself, He's actually revealing Himself. If that makes sense. Yes, that does make a lot of sense to me and resonates with me. And it reminds me of I. I do think we need humility mm. in how we face this question, and just to be open-minded to consider. There are some who have argued that. If God were to give, you know, because we can ask our friends, you know, what kind of revelation would you want? What would be mm. that sufficient kind of revelation for you? And and they might say something more overtly miraculous, you know, but there are many people who've argued that something like a burning bush appearance to Moses or something more overtly miraculous wouldn't actually be as true a revelation mm. of who God actually is as what he has, in fact, given us through conscience and, uh, this kind of intuitive, immediate knowledge of God's uh, righteous character and law, and then through Christ and the incarnation, where we meet God himself. And so, you know, I do find that kind of intriguing, because you think about that, if God were to give miracles, you could assume you're hallucinating, or it might not tell mm. you which God, it might not tell you about God's nature, it might not tell you how to respond to God, but in Jesus Christ, we have a revelation of God that bring. You could argue this. Bring, this is the best way. This is the clearest revelation of who of the heart of God, who God really is. In, a, you know, think of the disciples, the resurrected body of Christ, and they're touching His flesh. It's amazing thought that 
if God has done that, what better way, what more direct avenue to the knowledge of God than through this, that he became a creature and entered into our creation? So it's kind of, again, it gets into our expectations of how God will reveal himself. And I think a good case can be made that the way God has revealed himself, according to the Christian story, is actually the best possible way that God could relate to a fallen, sinful world that needs redemption. So, so what about, I guess there's, there's first the question of God's revelation in the person of Jesus and the sort of obscurity of that in some sense. And then there's the question of how that, that message or that reality then has, be, has been communicated over the last 2,000 years. Um, you know, famously at the end of, of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Sort of sends out this crew as it were um to spread the message pretty much sort of person by person like word by word like it it, it, there wasn't a um a massive kind of global news flash that went out at that point it was a a very incarnated i suppose and very sort of uh, human means for communicating the message so help help us think about that gavin even today of why it is maybe that god would use human like faulty sinful limited humans like you and me to reveal himself to others like for for us to be able to to pass on that message to others rather than writing this guy or something kind of more mm-hmm. more obvious well the first thing this question does for me is it just reminds me of the urgency that we have and the privilege we have of sharing about the gospel with other people because if it's true that god uses even us, you know, very fallible, limited people to spread the true knowledge of the true God, then, uh, you know, this just makes my heart burn with a passion to be eager to share about it. And I want to shout it from the rooftops. You know, that's kind of the first more Mm. practical sort of feeling. You think of Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And Paul feels this sense of urgency. Um, And so, you know, that's the first practical application for me as a believer to put on myself. Mm. To make sense of that a little bit, one thing that I think is helpful to remember is that the knowledge of God isn't solely spread through human testimony. Eyewitness testimony is actually a great way to give evidence of something. Eyewitness testimony can be very powerful, but it's not just that. So I think as I've studied this issue, the reality of conscience has become more and more important to me in my own thinking. Because you think about all those human beings who live prior to the incarnation or outside of the scope of God's more explicit revelation of himself to the nation of Israel, for example. And what we would say is, you know, this objection gets into this idea of non-resistant non-belief, which is an idea that comes up that many people say, well, uh, so non-resistant non-belief is people who want to believe in God and would believe in God, but they just say, I don't have enough evidence for it. And uh, one of the things we get into here is we would say God has revealed himself adequately, though not fully, to every single human being through conscience, and that that there is a resistance to that revelation at the level of conscience. So we can resist God even without having a full knowledge of the doctrine of the Trinity or something like that, because every human being is relating to God at this fundamental level of our conscience. So I think that sets the necessary backdrop to then understand how the knowledge of God spreads through evangelism and missions and so forth, because it's not as though God isn't already revealing himself to to Mm -hmm. everyone. You know, the evangelist is coming along 
sort of interrupting a conversation that is already happening between the conscience and God that's been happening every day of our lives where the law of God reverberates around in our heart. We know, deep down, we know that good and evil are real and that they matter and so forth, and that we don't live up to our even, even our own standards. So I think getting into the, the testimony of conscience is so important because it can ward off the objection that basically God's being unfair or God isn't really showing himself to people or it's like, oh, only the people to whom the gospel has been preached has God revealed himself. And we would say, actually, actually, no, God has revealed himself through creation, through the stars, through the trees, through conscience to everyone, even if that knowledge is not sufficient to, to get one to a saving knowledge of God yet. So anyway, I just I find that helpful background context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the more countercultural and potentially offensive things, messages of of the Bible to us today is that rather than all of us sitting around as like basically good people who maybe make some mistakes sometimes and people who basically would be very open to God if only he took the trouble to sort of reach out to us that actually the Bible's diagnosis of us is pretty much the opposite of, of those things, that we are made in God's image, but but deeply sinful. Like, it's not just like, uh, uh, we're not perfect. It's actually that we're kind of sinful to the core. And that, as you're pointing out, we are actively resisting God, even if we aren't consciously doing that. I find it one of the things that sort of helped me in terms of thinking about and, and illustrating this is actually a, something from Harry Potter, which is, you know, I'm not unique in Harry Potter being one of my favourite book series, um, but I'm reading it to my, the series to my five-year-old at the moment because he was like, mum, I love scary things. You know, I was like, you're five years old, are you sure? You know, mum, I just love, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. fine. And it, it's fascinating to me that Harry's uncle and aunt, Petunia and Vernon Dursley, they think that they are really good people. Like they think that they are upright moral sort of citizens and that they have been incredibly kind to Harry for letting him into their house for the last, you know, 11, 12, 13 years, feeding him, clothing him. You know, they think that they are probably 10 out of 10 in terms of generosity because they've been tolerating Harry's presence. We as the reader know that they're actually horrible people. Like they don't, like <laughs> they should have had a utterly different attitude toward Harry from the first but in their minds they're they're just great and and i think that's sort of it's a scary (laughs) thought that that we might be from the perspective of the reader of our hearts and minds actually like petunia and vernon dursley rather than like you know harry and his band of friends who are basically kind of heroes in the story Well, and my daughter, this may be the first podcast I've ever done that my daughter will want to listen to now that we've referenced her favorite books, Harry Potter and Home Alone and Frozen 2. But (laughs) this point is right on the money. I mean, it's uh, as offensive as it is. I think we need to say it that often the problem of divine hiddenness is articulated as though we were running towards God and can't find him. But the Christian Mm. claim is we are running away from him. And therefore, his mm-hmm. revelation of himself is well suited to that circumstance. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's fascinating how that pairs with what you were saying a few minutes ago, which is that God is like a lover actively pursuing his beloved. Like that it's not, even while we're running away from God, he is pursuing us and he has pursued us in the person of Jesus and sort of flung his arms wide open to us if if we are willing to 
to repent and believe and turn and sort of throw ourselves into those arms. The only one who knows our thoughts and deeds and kind of the worst of us actually loves us more than anybody else could as sort of beautiful mm-hmm. paradox of the Christian faith, I suppose, like in the at the heart of it there. What about people though, Gavin, who would say, you know, all right, so I personally have had the opportunity to hear the message about Jesus, but what about people in countries or in you know places or families who have just never had that opportunity you're saying okay you know maybe we're all um fundamentally kind of hostile to god but isn't it unfair that some people have the opportunity to hear and other people don't what would you say to somebody who had that that objection oh this is a tough tough question and again it comes up to what we said earlier about the urgency of missions i i mean i mm. i can't say there are yeah this is a tough question of is it possible that any person be saved apart from explicit faith? And uh, the reason this is so tricky is it even comes up with the case of those who die in infancy, for example. I myself am very mm-hmm. sympathetic to the possibility that God may save those who die in infancy, for example. So that would be one one mm-hmm. category of persons, and then you start kind of uh, stretching out and uh, I want to be careful there because I don't think the scripture is super clear on all these sort of borderline cases. I think the most healthy place for us to land it is the urgency we have of Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who, who bring good news. We need to bring the gospel to people. Ultimately, we know God is a just judge and will do what is right, but we shouldn't conceptualize this problem, it seems to me, as poor innocent victims because they haven't had an explicit revelation of the gospel because the Christian claim is that there is an adequate revelation of God that is universally resisted by human beings. But if I could say something to pastor someone, I, I think you know a lot of the people listening to this, I, I know there are so many like this right now, and I know you know folks like this as well. They're genuinely struggling, and it's not, it, mm. they're, they're sincere. I, I hope nothing I've said or that we've said thus far discounts the reality of sincere struggle, uh, that Christians go through at times through the dark night of the soul, that, that many times people who are on their way to faith it can be years of really mm-hmm. just agonizing. You think of Augustine's conversion, for example, or C.S. Lewis. It's this process, you know? And so I'm not wanting to discount the reality of that struggle, but if I could just encourage someone that there are promises in, in Holy Scripture that say, basically, if you seek me, you will find me. Uh, I think of the verse in mm-hmm. Jeremiah, uh, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I think of Matthew 7, knock and the door shall be opened to you. It won't be easy. We shouldn't expect faith should be easy. Faith is the greatest passion of the human soul. It might be the life, the struggle of your life. It's not going to be easy. But to encourage someone, the picture we have of Christ, since we've said that Christ is the revelation of God, Christ is so responsive to faith in the Gospels. Mm. When people come to him with a sincere faith. He is so responsive. The sternness of Christ that he often displays toward like the Pharisees, for example, softens when he meets a penitent person who comes to him in faith. So I would just want to encourage mm-hmm. people, yeah. genuinely seek God and you will find him. You won't just be forever struggling with ambiguity and uncertainty. If you're like 50-50, you know, keep praying mm-hmm. and keep seeking God. And he, his promises, he will meet you in that place of sincere faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A friend of mine who very recently became a Christian recalls a couple of years ago, she'd sort of started going to church, sort of dip her toe in because she'd been curious about Christianity and had given up after a few weeks. But she remembered the pastor on, on one of the sermons saying, 
uh, why don't you go home and pray that God would show you how much you need him. And so she did that and she didn't really think anything of it at the time. But now looking back over the years, sort of between when she prayed that prayer and now, she recognises quite how fully God showed her how much she needed him. And I, I think it's fascinating to me as I read through the Gospels that it's it's the people who recognise their sinfulness and their suffering and their need who come to Jesus. It's actually like the people who think they're just fine, just fine with God or just fine like in general, they can't see who Jesus is. Like when the, the Pharisees come to him and say, you know, this kind of complaining that Jesus is hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry, it's not the, the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come for the righteous, but for sinners. And, you know, as the reader, we're recognising that actually the Pharisees are just a symbol. They, they just don't realise it. But that, I think that prayer can be a helpful one, you know, whether it's Lord, show me how much I need you, or even Lord, like, show me my sin, which is probably not something that we would instinctively want to to pray if we're you know, trying to figure out what we believe about God but that actually if we don't know how desperately in need we are we're not going to recognize the savior God sent and and therefore we're not going to kind of see who Jesus is yes and if someone is listening to this who feels paralyzed by indecision because of a lack of intellectual clarity I would one of the things I've learned through doing my YouTube ministry is I would like to encourage them in this way that while study has its place I don't believe in in, in faith as an irrational leap that is not thoughtful at all but I believe where existential certainty comes in it's kind of like falling in love you know you don't you don't just turn off your mind when you're falling in love with someone but where you actually pass the threshold into an existential commitment to that person is not just because you thought about it enough there's an existential di- dimension to falling in love and so with faith i would just want to encourage them that if you feel as though if you just read enough books and think enough and study the cosmological argument long enough, eventually you will find that sort of resting place that our hearts yearn for. You will probably be disillusioned because, you know, how, however long you think about these things, it's going to be intellectually complicated in some way or another. But mm-hmm. it's such a happy thought of what you're saying, but that God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So while we continue to study and think, the most important thing is a humble faith. And it's such a happy, comforting Mm -hmm. thought that there is an assurance. The the Holy Spirit has a ministry of assurance to the human heart so that when we open up our heart to the Lord and sincerely humble ourselves before him, humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging our need for his grace, the Holy Spirit can testify to our heart of his love for us. And I would just want to encourage Mm -hmm. someone to make that the focus for where you're going to break through to certainty and joy and a kind of existential peace about these matters, not thinking, I just need to read one more book or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so helpful. I think I've sometimes said to encourage friends who are seemingly earnestly seeking the Lord, that actually as long as you are putting yourself in the position of judge, of, you know, judge of God's actions, judge of God's choices, judge of how, how God has, has, has decided to reveal himself, you're actually never going to be able to see God to recognize who he is because that's just not who we are relative relative to God. Gavin, thank you so much for spending some time with me thinking through these questions. Um, I would encourage everyone again, if you um, haven't come across Gavin's YouTube channel, Truth Unites, um, to 
take a look there. He covers a, a whole wide range of questions um, from from things which might be, I think Americans call it insider baseball. Is that the appropriate yes, expression, Gavin, for, for Christians to things that, which if you're not a Christian at all, you know, major questions that you might have had about Christianity. Uh, I would really encourage you to go and check that out. You have been listening to the Confronting Christianity podcast. You can follow us on uh, Twitter slash X uh, or Instagram. Um, you can leave a review on iTunes um, and include a question that you would like to see explored in a future episode. And I hope that you'll join us next Tuesday. Until then. <laughs>